Welcome to Business Resilience Decoded. From Disaster Recovery Journal and Asphalus Advisors. Now, here's your host, Vanessa Vaughn Matthews. Welcome to Business Resilience Decoded. I am your host, Vanessa Vaughn Matthews, the founder and chief resilience officer of Asphalus Advisors. We have an accomplished guest lined up for you today, speaking on the topic of climate change resilience, a business imperative. So let's jump right in and meet our guest, Joyce Coffey, the president of Climate Resilience Consulting. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to our discussion. Absolutely. So, uh, Joyce, can you tell our listeners more about you and then secondly, how you got into climate change resilience? You bet. I've been working in climate change resilience for over 25 years, but I don't think I really knew that until about a decade ago. I've been very fascinated by infrastructure service delivery and how critical infrastructure serves our communities. And in particular, wanting to make sure that my career was focused on saving lives and improving livelihoods, even in the face of some of the biggest problems or challenges that our communities face. And in today's era, I think there are two burgeoning issues that are really affecting most Americans and most people around the world. One of those is climate change risks, the physical impacts of a changing climate. And the second of those is social inequity. So in my world, um, I'm really focused in on climate change resilience, and in particular on strategy and finance for climate change. Um, Just to end that, you know, like many of us throughout my career, I've done a lot of planning. And now I really feel strongly that I need to uh, pivot to implementing. And the way to do that from my perspective is to uh, make sure that assets are flowing towards uh, climate change resilience and also that we are measuring our outputs and outcomes from that work um, from the perspective of how many people are impacted, hopefully in a good way from the efforts that we undertake here. I love that. So you've been in the business or in the industry for 25 years, but didn't realize it until the past 10 years. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and actually, I'll just say one more thing about that, that the red thread in my career, I think all of us can look back and say, like, what's the one theme that's been um, sort of our, our guiding line? And for me, it's really been the question of water, you know, water security, potable water quality, flooding, and all of those things are really wrapped up in climate change. Absolutely. Just for those listeners who who may not know, what is climate change? Yeah, that's just an incredibly important question um, that I think is often overlooked because we make an assumption that people know. So climate change is a change in weather over time, whether we understand to be an hourly or a daily or a weekly or even a monthly thing that we appreciate. It's about temperature or precipitation. Climate is when we talk about weather in terms of the year or the decade or the century. And so climate change is changes in heat, changes in cold, changes in precipitation, like for instance, more water when we don't need it and less when we do, and changes in the intensity of storms. And therefore, the physical impacts of climate change can be things like heat stress, drought, wildfires, coastal storms, river flooding, and lack of access to potable water as sea level rises, and therefore, water supplies become more saline or um, loaded with salt. So there's lots of different ways to understand what climate change is. But I think, in general, I like to end with just saying that climate change for you and me is three things. 
It's changes in temperature and changes in precipitation, those two things, and therefore impacts on humans. How do changes in precipitation and changes in, in temperature affect humans? That's really what climate change is all about. You know, it's interesting because I live in a city uh, in the southeast part of the United States and in typically what would be the wintertime, it really has not been winter mm -hmm. temperatures as we are accustomed to. So I'll right. I'll get into that a little bit more, but I um, definitely think it's interesting, which kind of leads us into our next question. This topic of climate change is on a political stage. Mm -hmm. I'm currently at a time in 2020 where candidates are running for political office and this conversation is continuously coming up. In addition to that, many corporations I've seen are now taking um, the climate change initiatives and, and sustainability into their own hands. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, if we don't have the legislation to back it or to, or to support it, then what are we going to do from a business perspective to be more uh, socially responsible? So mm -hmm. I say mm -hmm. all that to ask you two questions. Um, yeah. Yeah. One, can you catch us up to speed, right? So maybe, you know, a few years ago, we didn't hear a lot about climate change and now all of a sudden it's on the news every single day. Can you catch, mm -hmm. up, catch us up to speed as to why that is? And then mm -hmm. secondly, why is it imperative for businesses? And I can imagine that depending on the size of the company, that may change or it may alter, but in general, why is it imperative? Okay, great. Well, super set of questions. And I'm going to answer from the perspective of the, the United States, because um, as you pointed out, some of this is political and every country has a slightly different political mean as it uh, when it comes to the question of climate change risk. Yeah. You know, what I see has really changed was when Hurricane Sandy deeply impacted um, people in power in the Northeast, especially in Manhattan and um, in and around New York City, um, we saw a lot of folks who had already been impacted by disaster, the tragedy of 9-11, seeing that climate change could actually bring them to their knees just as much. Although what they were talking about at the time was extreme weather, they began to imagine maybe this is, in fact, a little bit more like what our future will look like, these sorts of um, unusual storms. And it's interesting that Hurricane Katrina had an even bigger impact in terms of the number of people, uh, the time it took for recovery, uh, the the amount of land that was impacted, but um, it seems as though Hurricane Sandy caused a bigger kerfluffle. And in fact, the largest climate change bill ever was put forward through and passed through the legislature. It had no word like climate change in it. It was the Sandy Reconstruction Act, and so that is really key because e even now um, with a federal administration that um, although I know you mentioned the presidential candidates are discussing climate change, the current administration doesn't do so as much. But on the other hand, in this administration, we've seen more and more funds flowing to disaster prevention or what's also known as mitigation. And that is incredibly valuable for us to acknowledge. Both FEMA and HUD, um, Housing and Urban Development, have put more money or been given the go ahead had to put more and more money into both mitigation and resilience. So that's, I think, part of what you're saying about sort of a transition. Um, and one other thing I would just mention, for those of us who work the sovereign or, or federal scale, but perhaps more locally um, in with business um, or with cities, and that is that 
we are all feeling impacts more than we used to. So it gets to your second question, what is the imperative for business? There are, I think, three things that came out in the last two weeks that remind us about why the physical impacts of climate change are so important for business. The first is that McKinsey, um, their global institute, and we know, you know, McKinsey, uh, I think they, they say that they have touched 40% of all um, governments in the world with their consulting and over 40% of all um, of the assets under management with their consulting. So they have a very large footprint. Um, and for the first time ever, they put out a really seminal report about climate risk and response and the physical hazards and socioeconomic impacts. That was the name of the report. You can search for it. Phys climate risk and response, physical hazards and socioeconomic impacts. And the reason they did, they said at the very beginning, is that they say that every one of their clients lists a worry about climate change as one of their key priorities. So we're seeing this in the sphere of influence of the big dogs. And then along comes BlackRock. So BlackRock, um, I think they're the largest asset manager in the world, and Larry Fink is their CEO, and like all CEOs of big financial houses, he puts out an annual letter. And in this annual letter that came out last week, which is available publicly, he makes the case that climate risk is investment risk. If you aren't investing, or if you're not looking through your portfolio to ask where does changes in temperature and changes in precipitation impact your portfolio, you are not being a good steward of your resources. And this is really the first time that anyone in a major position of power in the private sector, the financial services sector, has made such a claim, and it caused a lot of a reverberation. So then the third thing that came out was the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Perception Report. Um, maybe you've heard of WEF. They have a meeting at Davos every year in January, and it's basically 2,000 what they call educated elites. <laughs> they call themselves that. Um, it always makes me giggle because, of course, all of us could be considered educated in whatever realm we're working in. Um, mm -hmm. But in any case, for a decade, they've been interviewing these educated elites about their perception of risk. And this year, for the first time ever, the climate crisis dominates the top five risks for all stakeholders, be they nonprofit, civil society, you know, municipal, state, or federal leaders, or of course, the business leaders that are part of WEF's milieu. So that's really amazing, right? They're talking about um, the lack of access to potable water or the increase in droughts and wildfires. They're talking about the failure of climate change mitigation, that is the decreasing of greenhouse gas emissions, and the failure of climate change adaptation. They're talking about food insecurity. All of these things are directly related to the climate crisis. And it seems that it's really struck a chord for many who are asking the question, what is the likelihood of a particular risk and what is the impact of a particular risk? So, so let me play back what I think I heard you say. So between the uh, McKinsey report that's talking about climate risk and climate change from a socioeconomic perspective, mm -hmm. the climate elites that are talking about not only the impact that it has on their organization, but also the customers that they serve and the mm -hmm. employees that they serve and then BlackRock tied it into the bottom line is mm. basically what I say, right? That's a nice summary. Yeah, I think that sounds just right. Yeah. And so that's a very clear picture for our subscribers and our listeners as to why this is important. Mm -hmm. And if you're having conversations with your leadership team or if you're at the table, um, these are three very 
quality reports and information that um, Joyce has provided you with, which I will say I had a chance to meet Joyce last year and um, she definitely has access to a lot of data and intel around the subject matter. Um, if you could not tell, um, she's definitely an educated elite in this space. <laughs> That's a riot. Well, I guess all of us are on this podcast, aren't we? Right on. Right. Let's call ourselves that. <laughs> So you, you've kind of caught us up to speed, helped us to understand, you know, why it's imperative. So now it's the question of what happens if we don't do it? And I guess mm-hmm. do it maybe act or change or, you know, build a strategy. And then I think you started out, you know, when we got started today talking about execution, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. What happens if organizations don't act now? What's at stake? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, um, your question reminds me of a phrase that I used to hear my grandmother and my mom say to me, um, which was, Joyce, a stitch in time saves nine. And for me, that is like a mantra that I carry through my work since, in fact, knowing that climate change is here today, we have more extreme storm events, there's been flooding in the Midwest coastal storms that have wiped out um, communities, and of course, the devastating wildfires in California, as three examples in the United States that are very current. We need to be working today to mitigate impacts like that growing over time, because the way that we decrease those risks is by using money that we're investing today in infrastructure, be that hard infrastructure or social infrastructure, in enterprises that are going to be around in 10, 20, 30, even 100 years. Like when you and I turned our tap on this morning to get water, the likelihood that those pipes were underground for the last 100 years is very, very high if we were in an American city. And so, you know, if we're thinking that climate change is going to grow over time, which is what all of the science suggests uh, and what we've already seen happen in the last two decades, we must act now in order to have that stitch in time save nine. And it's not just grandmothers who think that. It's also, for instance, groups like the National Institute for Building Safety, NIBS, Mm -hmm. who puts out a multi-hazard mitigation strategy, typically every five years. Um, It's part of a congressional mandate. And of course, they need money to do it. So I say typically because it somewhat ebbs and flows based on how much money they can get. But in their most recent report, they showed that when you build risk mitigation to physical impacts into, for instance, regulatory structures or into federal grants, you can save as much as $17 for every dollar invested in that risk mitigation. For instance, for flood control, or building infrastructure around transportation, highways, and so on. So why wouldn't we make the best use of taxpayers' dollars or of our consumer dollar in order to build resilience for the future? And in fact, that's really what comes to my response about what's at stake. What's at stake is no less than the value of our homes, the ability of our communities to serve us with water that is healthy, our ability to have a healthy lifestyle, especially if we have family members or ourselves who suffer from pulmonary problems, because as heat increases, as temperature increases, we see more negative impacts on people who suffer from asthma or COPD. So this is what is at stake. It's the value that we place on the things that matter most to us, you know, Mm -hmm. our health, our housing, our communities. And in fact, we know from data, but also perhaps you could 
ask this question of yourself and say how you know it from your gut, that our more vulnerable populations suffer more in the face of these climate risks. What I mean is this, that lower income populations, the elderly, the young, and people of color face growing vulnerabilities, even as the hazards of climate risk grow. And so another thing that is at stake is the equity in our communities. Can we begin to increase social equity at the same time as we face climate change challenges? My answer is we must. Otherwise, we will see growing inequities as the physical impacts of climate change grow. And Joyce, just for our listeners who may not be aware, when you say social equity, what mm-hmm. does that mean? Social equity means that all of us have not only access to equal services, but those of us who might need a little bit more get additional services. We're going to need more and more FEMA dollars from the National Flood Insurance Program as more and more communities face flooding along the coasts or along rivers. And right now, FEMA dollars are generally distributed equally, but some residents need more than equal access because they will have lost more in an extreme event. For instance, if they have no mortgage because they're in a fourth generation home and therefore there is no paper on their house, they will struggle to get access to those FEMA resources. And it will be both inequitable and inequitable. And yeah, it will be inequitable to, for them. So that will increase social inequities based upon climate change risk. What does it look like to practice climate change resilience? And I'm mm-hmm. going to put this in a bit of perspective. So some organizations are managing water. Some organizations may be oil and gas companies. Some organizations may, um, you know, be a part of trains, planes, and automobiles, whether they're manufacturing them or whether they are, you know, transporting people from one end of the spectrum to another. Some people or some organizations may be considered a um, waste organization. And so to your point, it may be a state, local, or federal agency that may be responsible for disseminating funds. And Mm -hmm. so... When you think about all of those different players, right, that that can be a big scope. And so (laughs) what does it take to practice climate change resilience and how would you help someone to kind of understand that? I'm going to start with some examples about what climate change resilience is, because I think that most people in the world have the question that you just asked. Mm So let me give you some examples. Climate change resilience is the city of Miami Beach elevating its roadways and shoring up its seawall. It's the city of Phoenix increasing shade by changing building ordinances to allow the private sector to put up shade along the sides of their buildings. It is the city of Chicago changing its emergency response system so that during extreme heat events, ambulances do not get bypass from emergency rooms. In other words, the emergency room has to fill up to more than 90% capacity when the temperature is over a certain amount. So some of those changes are very physical. They're expensive infrastructure put in place. Some of them are regulatory. They kick the can to the private sector to um, increase resilience in communities. And some of them are process related. So resilience in the case of, for instance, a city serving its constituents can have many, many um, 
faces. Now, let's just move over to, and by the way, those are three of literally hundreds of examples. <laughs> now, let's move over to the private sector, right? The private sector is motivated by either pain or greed. So private sector examples of resilience would be, for instance, having a belt and suspenders on your supply chain. If there's a product that you require in order for your um, widget to be produced, you would, as a climate change resilient corporation, ensure that that product was being built in two different geographies. So that in the case of, for instance, a flood event like we had in Thailand um, about eight years ago that shut down manufacturers of pigments for cars and brake pads for cars and essentially put many different com car company, um, automobile um, manufacturing companies on a complete lock because of the lack of access to these brake pads, you would have these brake pads being um, manufactured in several countries. So that would be one thing that a private sector company might do. A second thing might do be that they, in their business continuity plan, they would really shore up their phone free so that in the case of a snowmageddon, an extreme snow event, when people cannot get into their offices, but work still needs to go on because the snowmageddon is only happening in one in your headquarters, and in fact your whole operation is working around the world, you still have a way for people to get in touch with one another. And that's becoming so much easier over time. So technology is really allowing for us to have a lot more interoperability, even when our physical assets are down. Another thing that um, the private sector might do is find new markets. So, you know, we're seeing, for instance, growing incidents of vector-borne disease in, like, mosquito-borne disease in places that that didn't used to happen before. So, there are companies that make mosquito repellent and tick repellent that are really building up their businesses because there is a much greater demand for their products. Similarly, the engineering and construction field you know, the more disasters that we have, the more John Deere tractors that we need, or the more engineers we need to come in and, and figure out how to rebuild the bridge. So there's also business opportunity that comes out of building climate change resilience. So there are six or so examples of climate change resilience. But I think we could take away from that, what does it look like to practice climate change resilience? Like, what do I need to do, whoever I am listening to this podcast? And I would offer that there are three things that you need to do. And I, I really always try to take the sugar versus the vinegar approach. Like, let's start with what you're doing well versus what you have not done perhaps so well in the, few, in the past. The first thing is to really assess how more water when we don't need it and less when we do, or more heat or even more cold would impact whatever it is that you care about. Maybe it's your customers. Maybe it's your community members. Um, how will those things matter to you. And then to ask, how do you already deal with those things? How do you already deal with the extremes, knowing that the extremes are going to get worse? And then to say, and where are your gaps? Where are there going to be, where have there already been extremes where if we're honest with ourselves, we have not done a good job? Like for instance, in the case of PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, the public um, private utility in California, there were line workers at PG&E who said there is a real extreme worry around wildfire based upon sparks coming from our lines. They knew this was a risk. So you would take that risk and you would magnify it, put it on steroids and say, gosh, what should we do given that these risks are going to grow? Um, so that would be like a three-part process for building your resilience. And then I would also say 
because climate change is different from many things that we deal with, like most of the time as a practitioner in any field, we say, well, the past is sort of a good indicator for the future. So I'm going to base my future efforts on what I've done in the past. In the era of climate change, you can't do that. The future looks very different. The scenarios for our plans need to be very different. So you need to be willing to investigate science for your region. There's a lot of information out there about like what climate change impacts will be for your city where your headquarters are located or, you know, where you plan to retire or whatever. And you need to be able to bridge that into essentially getting traction for complex initiatives that cross over between different verticals. You know, just to think about it, I'll end with this, the, the six examples that I gave you, there was no one field that was responsible for those things, right? It might be that your emergency manager is dealing with your sustainability officer, is dealing with the person who deals with your board of directors, is dealing with your legal team, and is dealing with your finance team. All of these people are involved with building climate change resilience. And that's really, you know, somewhat tough for most of us who work within only one silo or one vertical. So that's another tip about how you can build resilience or practice resilience um, in your organization. I love that. And I definitely love the examples because it helped to give me a visual. So thank you for that. Um, So the last question I'll ask you about this topic is concerning the challenges that organizations are facing with climate change. And, you know, I think you laid out a lot of reasons why this could be a challenge, whether it's funding, whether it's culture, um, you know, or quite frankly, whether people see it as a hoax or Mm -hmm. not, right? Right. But the Uh other thing that I think about too is there's so many companies that are global. And I Mm. would think that a global um, perspective can create a challenge as well. So because this Mm -hmm. is your space, you know, what challenges are you seeing? Okay, this is really an excellent question. Um, and I'm just going to say at the upfront that these challenges are not insurmountable. And you you raised one even in your um, in your question, which is the challenge of belief around climate change. You know, that will be a challenge. And frankly, even the title of this podcast will be challenging for some people. They won't want to be, a, you know, invested in asking questions about climate change. And I would just offer um, in the event that you're, you know, sending this on to someone else to listen to because you found it somewhat interesting, you should invite them to listen to it and try to translate the word climate risk into just weather risk. Like you can actually make a ton of progress with anyone around this question without having to ask or answer the question of climate change. So with that, and also by the way, climate change is not a belief system. This is not a faith And in the United States, for some reason, we've really begun to talk about climate change from the very beginning as we believe in climate change or we don't believe in climate change. Climate change is like any other science. It's a fact. And you either know the facts or you don't know the facts. So being the kind of person that knows the facts typically makes you a better leader. Having said that, you could listen to all of this without, you know, climate change. I do want to mention what some of the major challenges are facing organizations that want to do what, for instance, McKinsey and BlackRock and the World Economic Forum are saying that they must do, which is to embrace climate change risk and to assess it and then address it. And the way that I think that we need to do this is 
twofold, and it's very challenging. One, we need to ask ourselves as an organization, what scenario of climate change risk are we going to put into our decision making? Are we going to assume that we're all going to get much better at energy efficiency, renewables, um, transportation innovation, and therefore greenhouse gas production will go down? Are we going to assume, and that would be a real best case scenario, let's hope for that, right? And let's plan for that and let's work on that. Are we going to assume that we're going to balance out, kind of level out the current level of greenhouse gas emissions, which we haven't yet done, but we have a lot of desire to do so? Or is it going to be business as usual? Are greenhouse gas emissions continue going to continue to grow around the globe? You know, those three scenarios suggest very different pathways for action. And I'm going to use the example of infrastructure um, to illustrate what I mean. If you are in the process of, um, for instance, building a water treatment plant, or maybe you're in the process, you're a beer manufacturer, or you work in natural gas and you have a lot of need for water supply, as you make decisions around that water asset, are you going to assume that we're going to have increasing greenhouse gas emissions that are going to increase demand for water, that are in going to increase drought, and that might even increase, um, for instance, a, a lack of water security because so many people are taking from your watershed or because there's um, you know, growing sea level rise that's beginning to impinge on the water treatment plant? What of those three scenarios do you choose? And then the last really major challenge aside from those scenarios, is what time frame do you use? Because most of us, when we make our investments, if we're in the private sector, we're thinking about the next quarterly board call. If we're in the city, we're thinking about the next four-year of election. Um, maybe we're in, you know, we're in the financial services and we're thinking about the credit rating for whatever company we're investing in, which is typically a two- to three-year cycle. But frankly, all the things that we're working on, unless they're disposable, they have lifespans that are 10, 20, 30, many years old. So when we're thinking about climate change and we know that we cannot base our decision-making based upon the past, but we have to look to a future scenario which is predicted to be very different, what is the time frame within which we are willing to make those decisions? Is it 2030? Is it 2100? Because much of the decisions that we make today, if we're assuming, for instance, a business as usual, I'm sorry, a best case scenario, scenario for climate change, and we're only, only planning out to 2030, many of the things that we're building are going to be obsolete given the risks of climate change. So that's a really huge challenge for organizations. And um, that's the kind of thing that I work on with my clients to try to get our arms around. In the end, it all comes down to money, public money, tax dollars, or private money revenue. How are we going to handle the fact that climate change changes those things so dramatically? Wow. I uh, I feel so informed. Goodness, um, you've, you've definitely added a lot of value. Um, so where can our listeners find you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I am at climateresiliencecconsulting.com online. My name is Joyce Coffey, and I'm um, super available also via LinkedIn, if you all use that. Um, and I'm really keen to speak with any of you about the challenges that you're facing. So feel free to shoot me an email. Um, I'll also give you my email address, which is Joyce, J-O-Y-C-E, at climateresilienceconsulting.com um, because I'd really love to hear from you. Like, What sorts of challenges are you facing? And what's the sugar versus vinegar approach you've taken? In other words, how have you already addressed some of the physical impacts of extreme weather? And how can you really maximize that to ensure you know, safe lives and improve livelihoods for the future? 
I love that. So there's two things that I learned learned from Joyce today. One was uh, educated elite. <laughs> An educated elite. Okay, so there's three things. Educated elite. Number two, sh- sugar versus vinegar. Right. And number three, you either know the facts or you don't. <laughs> I love it. So there you have it. Thanks for tuning in to Business Resilience Decoded with the Disaster Recovery Journal and Asphalus Advisors. Subscribe, share, download, and look out for future episodes. Business Resilience Decoded is produced and edited by John Seals. For more information, visit drj.com slash decoded and asfalasadvisors.com slash decoded. Write to us on Twitter at drdecoded.